Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Um, sorry for starting a minute late. Full disclosure, I just chugged an iced coffee. I've been listening to the last five years soundtrack. Um, and also when as soon as I walked into the studio, I dropped my AirPods and then I had to like crawl around for a couple minutes, like trying to find where my AirPods went because they fell out of the case. So I'm feeling a little punchy this morning, this afternoon. Um, so just, just fair warning. We're out here, you know, we're doing the thing. So again, welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Happy Thursday. Um, hope you guys are all having a great week. It's been a long week. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the, the honeymoon period is kind of over for this semester and we are really getting into it now. We are kind of well on our way, kind of chugging through the semester here, already in week four of the semester, which is pretty crazy. So um, today on Sheep Thrills, we are going to talk about the State of the Union. Uh, so the State of the Union happened this past Tuesday uh, and it's always a very kind of important day for the political science majors among us, uh, definitely, you know, it's a big event. It's the, you know, Super Bowl of the political world. Um, so definitely an important thing kind of setting us up for what we need to be paying attention for, paying attention to kind of in the entire year of 2023 and moving forward. Um, it's whatever. It's like a goofy thing and like whether or not you like are, are like going to save the union watch parties, like whatever. But it is an important thing to kind of understand where we are, understand where we're going, and especially this um, this State of the Union coming right after the midterm elections. This was kind of an opportunity for Biden to take a little bit of a victory lap and also kind of set up his own, his own you know, setup for what he wants to do over the next two years um, and, you know, if he's going to run for re-election, like what that kind of whole situation is going to look like. So with all that being said, we are going to jump right into it uh, and kind of run through some of the, the bigger points, uh, the responses, everything like that. Um, and we will just kind of get into those those bigger ideas uh, that got brought out by the State of the Union this past Tuesday. So first of all, let's talk about what Biden actually said. So just a little bit of like context setting for what he actually talked about. In my opinion, as someone who's, you know, whatever, not that I've been watching, you know, I'm 21 years old, so it's like how many State of the Unions could I possibly have watched? But based off of the State of the Unions that I have watched, he didn't say anything like crazy remarkable. He kind of talked about, he, 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 had all, he hit all the big points that we knew that he was going to hit. So he talked about um, bringing down the price of insulin, which has kind of been a big Democratic talking point over the past couple years. Um, he talked about infrastructure and the CHIPS Act and, um, you know, transportation infrastructure and physical infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. He talked about education, um, bringing up issues like universal pre-K and, you know, paying teachers more and uh, kind of all of those issues. Something he didn't, at least as far as I know, at least as far as I noticed, he didn't talk about any of the book banning. He didn't talk about any kind of like educational um, sovereignty, I guess, um, any of those issues. So that was something kind of interesting that he did not talk about those issues, but he did talk a lot about universal pre-K and, and issues like that 
kind of talking about making sure that students um, are prepared for school, which is something I'm doing a project on in one of my classes. So when he was talking about that, I was like, oh, I know all about that, which is always exciting. Um, he also, you know, talking, talking about infrastructure, he talked about unions and he really emphasized um, the economy and good paying blue collar jobs. And, you know, he has this line that he's used a couple times, but it bangs every time that a job just it. it what the, the, I don't remember the exact line is, but it's something about that your job shouldn't just be about a paycheck. It should also be about dignity. And I think that's a great line. And I think that it's a really excellent encapsulation of that whole argument of like, yeah, you should you should be able to like pay your bills, but you also should have to like have pride in the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that's really good. And that's something he emphasized a lot in terms of you know, we're going to be developing all of this infrastructure. So we also need to be um, making sure that all of those jobs within the United States give people dignity as well as enough money to survive both inside the job and outside the job, which is, you know, as a as a labor policy person, I like to hear. Then again, the whole conversation about the economy, that was kind of a big that was kind of like the one one of the bigger things, obviously, he wanted to emphasize um, because there have been so many concerns about inflation over the past year, because obviously inflation has been an issue. The price of eggs we all love to talk about um, and everything like that. But what we also know at the same time, even though inflation is very high, um, also unemployment is the lowest it's been in 50 years and the economy has been growing. Um, so it's there are these two very conflicting truths. There are two very conflicting realities about the state of the economy. Um, and well, you know, it's 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 important for Biden to be able to kind of recontextualize both of those realities. Fake facts, whatever. I don't know, whatever the Republicans say. Um, but like recontextualizing that to say, yeah, I know inflation is bad, but also let's talk about all of the economic growth that's happening and here's how we can continue to make the economy better over time. Um, so trying to get people to be like optimistic about the state of the economy when I know a lot of people really are not optimistic about the state of the economy, trying to like prioritize those developments and those successes rather than the issues that are apparent throughout the economy. Um, that was definitely an important section of the speech. He also, of course, talked about Ukraine uh, and kind of democracy in general at home and abroad. Um, he is still kind of the, the ambassador, I guess is the ambassador to the U.S. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States was at the State of the Union again. I'm pretty sure she was there last year as well. Um, and so if you can think about it, it's this, this war has been going on for, for over a year now, um, which is kind of crazy to think about, but it is the case. Um, and so just the same kind of talking points that have been around Again, just like democracy at home and abroad, talking about January 6th, talking about the the importance of kind of protecting our institution from institutions, from fascists. Um, not that he used that many words, but that's what he was saying. So, you know, I'm pro. I am anti. This is this is something that I can say with absolute certainty. And you can quote me on this. I am anti-fascist. Wow. That was that was that was good. I want I want you to quote me on that. Anyway, um, 
So then he also got into a pretty big section towards the end about police violence. And then he kind of followed that up with a conversation about gun control. Um, and that police violence section was very important, um, kind of coming on the heels of the Tyree Nichols killing that happened a few weeks ago, I believe, or the all the information about the killing came out a couple weeks ago. Um, but Tyree Nichols's parents were there. Um, this is kind of coming on the heels again of the funeral. Kamala Harris actually went to the funeral last week, two weeks ago. Um, and so obviously coming into this, this was something that people were saying, you need to hit this section. And I think that it was, it was very clearly kind of done very well. I'm going to talk about it more later. Um, but that section was very robust. Um, talking about police violence and then transitioning into the conversation about gun control. I think he hit both of those sections pretty well. And it was a big chunk of the speech. And then, of course, there's always kind of the themes of, like, bipartisanship, blah, blah, blah. But also, you know, Joe Biden is not the kind of president where he is going to um, kind of pretend that he is not pro-big government. Like, he's he, he thinks that it's a good thing. Um, so he's definitely talking about working together and trying to develop these policies like with the Republican majority in the House. And he made a lot of references to that. But he also called out Republicans specifically for threatening Medicaid and Social Security, um, for all of the drama over the debt limit. So he, you know, he's, he's stating that he wants bipartisanship, but he's also not going to be afraid to um, kind of call people out, call the Republican leaders out for their kind of hypocrisy within um, their own policy proposals and legislation and debate and all of that. And this kind of gets into like the, the overarching argument of the speech and kind of like the main theme of the speech was let's finish the job. He said that like over and over again, let's finish the job. Things are going so well, but like, let's finish the job. Um, and so he's making the case in this speech that he has only just begun and that we're really, we're working towards this progress and we've accomplished so many goals, but there is still so much work, so much more work to be done. And guess what? The only way to get that work done is to elect me president again in 2024. That's the pitch he was making. Cause again, kind of now getting into this next section that I wanna talk about, just like, what are the expectations of the speech? The expectations broadly were Biden is going to be setting up his re-election campaign. He's going to be making the case for his own re-election. And the case is, let's finish the job. We started, now we have to follow through on all of these things that we started, that we promised. Um, the only way to finish the rebuilding of the economy of the country post-COVID, post-Trump, is another Joe Biden term in office. That's the case that he's making, and he laid that out pretty clearly. We are, you know, we, we're, we've gotten so far with the economy, we've brought unemployment all the way down, but we still have to address inflation. Who's going to be able to do that except for me? Um, we started all of these negotiations over lowering the price of insulin and implementing universal pre-K and doing all these infrastructural issues. We started that negotiation under me. Who's going to be able to finish it but me? So that's basically the argument that he was laying out throughout the speech. Um, so again, that was the expectation going into the speech was that he was going to be kind of laying out that argument overall. And that, that is basically what he did. So now, right, so we, the, the, the joke 
that I always find funny every time I watch a State of the Union is the the quote in the West Wing, where I think it's the same like time frame, like it's like his third or fourth State of the Union, and Bartlett goes, "Yeah, they're telling me that this is the speech of my political career." And I feel like they said that last year and the year before. And so everyone's saying, oh, yeah, this is the speech of Joe Biden's political career. Like, it's a make or break time. Like, this is it. Like, they've been saying that to him in every single speech for his entire life. Like, he's been in office for 50 years. This is probably not the speech of his political life. But that's kind of the situation. So the question then becomes, like, should Biden run for re-election? What's the answer to that question? Um, it his Whether or not he should run for re-election, that's like a separate conversation. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe I'll find a pro and anti-person and do a little like debate situation uh, later in the semester. But there's kind of like three prevailing arguments, like forms of analysis that people have. So number one is that Biden has been a great president, but he's too old and we need fresh blood in order for the Democrats to maintain power. So, like, he was great, but if he runs for re-election, he might not win. And if he does win, we're going to have to contend with the fact that he very well might die in office. Um, so the, the important thing there also is that we're assuming that Kamala Harris is going to stay on as vice president. And Kamala is even more unpopular than Biden, which is like why that is, is an entirely separate conversation. And I kind of can't get into it because it's the answer is misogyny and also probably racism. But like, we'll get into that at another time. Um, but anyway, keeping her on as vice president will be probably more of an electoral deterrent than a benefit. And the only reason like the like the purpose of the vice president now is how can we benefit electorally from having another um, person on the ticket. And so if Kamala Harris isn't going to be a benefit electorally, and she's also going to be a deterrent because people are going to think, oh, Joe Biden's going to die in office and then Kamala Harris is going to take over. That's not great for that ticket. Um, and I think that him removing her from the ticket will be such a thing like, it'll be such a thing that I doubt they would risk that because, like, who are they going to replace her with? Um, but that's so that's not great. And then so the the vice president topic is going to be important for both parties, um, especially if Trump emerges as a frontrunner because he's old, too. Um, but anyway, so that's just that's 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 one prevailing form of analysis. He's a good president, but he's too old. We need to move forward, move on, have some new blood. The second theory idea, whatever, is that Biden has been a good president. And there's also like, but there's also nobody else in the Democratic Party who can feasibly step into his shoes and win against someone like Trump or even like DeSantis. So there's nobody with the kind of experience, national recognition, general political chops, and again, just like straight up ability to kind of compete against the kind of Republican candidates that they're putting up. Because, like, literally, let's think about it. Harris is wildly unpopular, even though she probably fulfills, like, the rest of the criteria. Buttigieg, whatever. Klobuchar, like, also whatever. Like, there's nobody with the, the amount of recognition nationally. Like, just name recognition, I think, that, that, that people need. And I'm so, I recognize that I'm so deeply disconnected 
from like how, what the real world knows about politics because I was watching the speech and my roommates were kind of like looking over my shoulder and they like panned out into the crowd and my roommate was like who's that guy and I was like oh that's blah 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 the representative from this district and blah blah my roommate was like how do you differentiate all of these old white men I was like I don't know and it's a little scary and I kind of wish that I wasn't able to immediately identify that person but we're just gonna move on so I recognize that like I don't know who people know like if I just picked out a random person on the street and I said like who do you like do you recognize this random member of Congress? They would probably say no. Um, so I think that's like an important thing here to like not take everything that I say just for granted because I don't know what no how normal people consume politics. And that's a problem, but we're, <laughs> whatever. Um, but anyway, there's nobody else who can, in my opinion, there's nobody I perceive can compete at Biden's kind of weight class um, in order to run for president. And that's maybe Biden's own problem that he like didn't allow for the room um, that or like the reality that he wasn't going to run again. So nobody else kind of had enough air to be able to gain like that level of national prominence um, that they need in order to effectively run for president. So it's that's a that's a, that's like a tough part of the conversation as well but then the third argument which is democrats mostly republicans whatever biden was a bad president there should be a new republican candidate there should be a new democratic candidate we need to clean the slate and just move on um so obviously that that's that's the argument for everybody but i mean that's kind of also the argument for oh let's get rid of trump let's get rid of biden we need an entirely new slate across the board, which, you know, I tend to agree with. I mean, I don't like DeSantis and I don't know if anybody, whatever, whatever. I, I, we'll, we'll get into the DeSantis hate more throughout this semester. We won't take up more time talking about him now. But anyway, but the interesting thing for, again, in terms of like expectations for this speech, the expectation kind of the prevailing thought is that Joe Biden, among amongst Democrats specifically, Joe Biden is a good president, but he's too old to run again. And so going into this speech, that was what most Democratic voters specifically are thinking. And especially if we're thinking more in terms of the primary right now, um, and in terms of like whether or not Joe Biden is going to have enough political clout to run again, this speech was all about him showing that he has enough vitality, enough life, enough energy to be able to run for president again and to show that again he has what it takes in order to scale that kind of race again and that's again the whole point of let's finish the job him saying i have only just begun i am 50 plus years into my political career and i have only just begun like that's basically what he's arguing um so that's 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 it that's the context setting there of like what his goal was going in based off of what people expected from him. You know, he's not always the best speaker in the world. He does have the stutter and that is kind of a something that uh, impacts the way he speaks. So people know that going in, they know that he's old. So it's, can he express what he needs to express and can he do it with the level of energy necessary in order to prove that he is in it to win it and that he is like an effective potential president again. 
So, with all that being said, what we talked about, what the expectations were, how was the overall performance? So, I am not going to lie that I was watching this speech, like, so scared. Like, truly, truly so scared. Um, I was literally watching the speech like I was his, like, grandmother. I, I Like, why was I so afraid every single time he opened his mouth? I was watching this, and in the very beginning of the speech, he got up there, and he started to ad-lib, and as soon as he started to ad-lib, he started to stumble over his words, and I literally almost had to, like, close my computer and walk away. I was so scared, because I just... The State of the Union... I think I talked about this last year when we talked about the State of the Union, but there is probably nothing more stressful in the world than doing the State of the Union. Like, getting up there alone in front of all of your supporters and all of your detractors and the entire world and having to talk for, like, more than an hour and, like, defend your entire resume in front of a thousand people... There's just, and it's not like a, like you're a Broadway performer and the lights are down and you can't see the audience. Like when you are, I assume, not that I've ever been up there, but when you are up there, you can see every single person. You know exactly what everyone's faces look like. You have to look into the eyes of everyone that supports you and that hates you. And to me, that is horrifying. Like that is probably the scariest thing that a single individual person can do. And so that's why the State of the Union gets me very nervous is because I think about, oh my God, what would I do if I was in that position? And I would burst into tears and run off the stage. I would not be able to do it. Um, so anyway, that's why I think I get a little bit hyper nervous for the president of the United States when they're doing this speech. And especially because I'm a big proponent of Joe Biden, just, just don't make the jokes and just do what's on the page and get through it and like, let's move on. And as soon as he started ad-libbing and making those jokes, that's when I started to get a little bit more nervous. But once he actually got going, it was pretty good. Um, and so, you know, once once he like settled in and kind of he made his obligatory um, uh, like Eagles joke, Super Bowl joke, and he kind of started getting more into it, that's when he kind of like settled in. And that's when actually his ad-libs got pretty good. Um, again, those ad-libs make me nervous, but when he nails them, he nails them. And there was a lot of detractors in the audience, and so there were a lot of opportunities for him to, like, respond to those detractors in real time, which was good, and he did a good job of that. So that was, that was kind of showed again that he was engaged, that he was active, that he was kind of showing that he is vital enough in order to kind of, again, respond to those people in real time, which is actually a really valuable thing. I'm sure the Republicans did not expect that to be a really valuable thing, um, but it was. And those those moments, I think, got the most screen time, the most clicks, the most engagement. Um, and those were his best, probably his best moments throughout the speech were when he was doing those ad-libs, which is gen generally surprising to me. The good thing that a lot of people also picked up on was that he was pretty much only focusing on kind of the bread and butter dining table issues, which like I hate the the the, the dining table analogy or the kitchen table analogy. It like it, it needs to go away. We need to come up with a new analogy, but whatever. So he's focusing mostly on those issues. Um, so he's 
not le- he was not leaning into the Twitter discourse. He was not giving attention to any of the culture war issues. Like I talked about, he wasn't talking about book bannings. He wasn't talking about critical race theory. Um, he was focusing on issues that people care about. He was talking about insulin. He was talking about social security. Um, one thing that he talked about for a while was um, talking about like hidden fees for hotels and tickets, which comes right on the heels of the Ticketmaster hearing that we talked about last week. So that's like a very random specific policy problem, but one that real people care about. You know, it's like what what again we talk we talk about this a lot or I talk about this a lot on the show is that like people think that politics is so esoteric and the way that politicians can really engage people is to talk not about like those esoteric things or to talk about those esoteric things but to bring them down in a way that allows people to understand how that impacts them specifically. So talking about, oh, hidden fees in general, or like bringing up like the, that policy doesn't really make sense to people once you bring it down and you say, you're not going to have to, you know, buy Taylor Swift tickets for thousands of dollars because Ticketmaster is upcharging you so much. That's when people understand, oh, these politics are actually going to impact me, bent, like, they're going to impact me individually. They're going to benefit my life. And the only way that I can allow those policies to impact me is if I'm going out and I'm voting. And I just think that's a very interesting thing that he did. Um, and again, talking about issues that, that matter to people. Um, and, you know, whatever. I, I, I am terminally online. And I always think it's really funny when the terminally online people that I also follow like, oh, Joe Biden did a great job of not appearing to be terminally online. Yeah, because he isn't terminally online. He, he, he does not know how to operate Twitter. That's not something he knows how to do. But anyway, I thought that was um, just, just, a, just a good thing overall. And a pretty stark contrast from the Republican rebuttal that we are going to see. We're going to talk about in, in a couple of minutes. Um, so again, he also responded directly to his detractors throughout the speech. I talked about that a little bit. Um, but there was a lot of jeering from the Republican side, a lot of people yelling at him that he was a liar and that it was his fault and all those kinds of things. A um, couple of things about that. One, McCarthy told them before the speech not to do that and to like have, be on their best behavior. And then McCarthy was also shushing them during the speech, which is hilarious to me because like we we talked about this last week and something I think we're going to talk about throughout this semester is that McCarthy has zero control over his caucus and he's going to continue having zero control over his caucus um and the fact that he had to be standing up there behind the president shushing people is oh it's just hilarious it's delightful he's got this unruly group of people that he's trying his best to maintain some level of control over and he's like a disappointed father sitting at the front of the room like telling them to be quiet it's like it's like he's the um teacher in like a fourth grade class and some somebody came in to do like an assembly on you know bullying or whatever and he has to stand behind the presenter being like you better be on your best behavior or like you're not gonna get to go to the pizza party next week like that's the situation there which i find funny whatever um and it's also just very interesting 
to kind of think about um, the way that our public discourse has changed. Um, and I forget what year they said it was, but I think under the Obama in the Obama years, there is a Republican member who yelled out that um, uh, Obama was a liar during the State of the Union, and he was formally censured by Congress. Um, there was kind of a whole big to do. But now, now we've got people yelling that he's a liar and yelling that all the, like, the fentanyl deaths are his fault and all these different things. And, like, they're base, they're barely going to be talked about for more than five minutes and then people are going to move on and we're going to forget that it ever happened. Because the quality of our discourse has just gone down so much. And, like, have Democrats contributed to that? Like, a little bit, but not, not as much. Um... Then again, I always, you know, we, we think about Nancy Pelosi ripping up Donald Trump's speech. I think about that once a week. I still don't know what I think about it. I think I'm pro because Donald Trump was not just, I don't know, whatever. I Maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. A little bit of a hypocrite. I might be. I, whatever. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I'm not a decision maker. I'm allowed to be a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> we'll move on. Um... Uh, what was I going to say? Okay, and then again, another point on the ad-libs, on, like, responding to detractors, all that kind of stuff. I think what was something that was very good about that, beyond just showing that he is able to respond in the moment, is also that I think that... Oh, I'm so sorry. That is a terrible sound. I'm just trying to fix the mic here. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, guys. Okay. Um, that people want to see that Democratic leaders can fight back instead of just rolling over and playing dead, as they are wont to do. And I think this kind of goes into the conversation we had last week about a lot of the culture war issues. Like, the Democrats just don't have a good enough answer to those debates other than maybe just be a good person and be compassionate, uh, which is, like, should be a good enough answer, but it isn't. Um, and I think that we just are not able to fight back on those debates as well as we should. Um and in that sense, again, like, Democrats love to roll over and just let things happen to them. But I think Joe Biden showing that he was fighting back during his State of the Union uh, is a little bit more reflective of the way that we want the Democrats to be operating on that national level. And how I think they were operating during the midterms, kind of trying to reinvent the way that the Democrats respond to criticism. And not just say, well, if that's what you think, whatever. Like, say, no, that's bad and you shouldn't believe you know you you hear all these reasons why you shouldn't believe that and blah 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 um so anyway i just think that's a very interesting reflection of the way that the democrats are trying to re-understand their role in political discourse and trying to reinvent or change around political discourse as as much as they can so that's interesting um also in terms of the actual performance, again, I talked about this a little bit, but I, the best section for me was the police brutality and the gun control section. Um, it was good. It was structurally very sound. I felt like a lot of the um, speech was like a little bit fractured, like he was just jumping around from point to point a little bit too much. Maybe that was because I kept tuning in and out because I was nervous, because <laughs> I was nervous for... 80-year-old president of the United States who has made so many speeches in his life. Don't, don't worry about me. It's all good. Um, 
so it was kind of jumping back and forth, but it was very clear that this police brutality section was written kind of as a, as an, kind of a later add-in to the speech, and therefore it was, like, structurally very good, it was arranged in a really kind of clear way, um, and of course there's always going to be some kind of pro-cop narrative that works its way in, um, but again, I think he was pretty, pretty aggressive and pretty profound in the way that he was talking about the way that policing works in our country. And I, I thought that I thought that he did pretty well. Um, actually, one of my professors said this week, kind of thinking about him being more critical of the policing industry than we've seen in from other presidents. Um, Biden has acknowledged the fact that the black community basically saved his presidential race in 2020. And so he's done a lot of work over the past two years, and he's going to continue to do a lot of work in the next two years, um, a lot of work to preserve that relationship. And he's going to, again, he's going to do that work to preserve that relationship because that that relationship was very important to his ability to actually win in 2020. And South Carolina, of course, the black vote in South Carolina completely changed the course of that election. Um, so obviously, not only was that section socially and like policy-wise very important to include, but politically it was very important as well um, for people to see that he is responding to these issues. Um, but anyway, that's all I want to say on kind of the actual performance and how he did once he was up there. Um, and now, reactions. What do people actually think went down there? Um, from Democrats, considering that most people went in with the assumption that, like, you know, cautiously optimistic, he always does, like, a pretty good job and it's fine. Um, but they also think, oh, he's on death's door and he's not. I don't think that a lot of people thought... I Let me... He... Everyone knows that he went in with the hope of making the case for 2024. I don't think that a lot of people thought he was going to effectively make that case. Um, however, I think that coming out of it, a people were a little bit more cautiously optimistic about his ability to actually run in 2024 and to kind of make that case. I think that people thought that he made it fairly effectively. Whether or not they continue to buy into it... I don't know. Who knows? But people did kind of come out of the speech with better impressions of him now than they did before. And again, when we're looking for Democratic buy-in right now from the like general populace of Democratic voters, that's pretty important. Because again, as I talked about earlier, when you're looking at those that polling, people like Democratic voters like Joe Biden. They like his policies. They just don't. They think he's too old. They don't think that he should run again. So that's the group of people that we're trying to convince. Uh, not, I'm sorry, the, kind of the royal way in terms of Democratic staffers in the White House. Not me personally. Although, if they are listening to this and they want to give me a job, please. Please. <laughs> I think I say that in every episode. I think I literally beg for a job in every episode. Don't, whatever. <laughs> um... And a anyway, a lot of Democrats, like, m are now, like, more than cautiously optimistic. Uh, people are saying this is his best speech ever, which, like, can't possibly be because he's been in government for literally 50-plus years. So I'm sure he's given another really good speech. But, you know, he's, he's, he's good. He's got it going on, whatever. Um, regardless of the fact whether or not this was his best speech ever, 
it was definitely a good speech and it definitely accomplished the, some of the goals that he, you know, set out to do. Was it enough to give him, you know, enough juice to get through to 2024? Maybe not. Is it enough to get him the juice just to get through the rest of his term? Maybe. Like, maybe this is going to be kind of a turning point in terms of his presidency and making sure that he has enough kind of political ammunition to get some work done over the next couple of years. But anyway, so he's, but also it's, it's clear to Democrats now that he is not rolling over. Like he is absolutely going to fight. He's going to do what he needs to do. Um, and he's not kind of going to back down and say, oh, I think you guys are right. Maybe I am too old, um, which is interesting. And that's, that's an important reality that I think we all need to kind of begin to contend with. Um, Republicans, what were their reactions? Um, on the, like, during the speech, lots of drama, heckling, whatnot, we've discussed. Um, general bad behavior, but, like, not all that objectionable. We've kind of covered this. I don't really need to get into it again. I'm realizing that I mixed up my, 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 uh, organization a little bit, but regardless. The Republicans were poorly behaved. That was to be expected. We've got some very funny pictures of Marjorie Taylor Greene in, like, a Cruella DeVille jacket, like, yelling. Whatever. It's the same old, same old, same old. Um, moving on, kind of response from the general audience. Obviously, like, all of the polling is still happening. But based off of a CNN flash poll, people thought it was good. They responded to the language. They responded to the issues. I think generally people had a like a good reaction to what the speech was saying, what the speech was talking about. So, you know, whatever. It's the same kind of conversation that we have about um, the impact of debates on like approval ratings, on polling during campaigns. Is that like you get like a temporary boost from things like this? They don't really. They're not super sticky. They don't really stick around that much. Um, but it is still interesting to see if anything is going to stick, um, for the general population as a result of the speech. So that's, that's kind of the response. The other big portion of the response is they always do, uh, kind of an official rebuttal. So kind of a televised, oh, well, that's what you said, but you're wrong. And here's what you should actually think kind of situation. Um, and this year the Republican rebuttal was done by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the current governor of Arkansas and the former press secretary under Trump. Um, and yeah, so she, she was in charge of the official Republican response. Um, and, you know, it's always interesting to hear what Sarah Huckabee Sanders has to say. I guess, whatever. Um, full disclosure, I did not watch because by the time Biden's speech was over, I was like bored and I didn't want to watch Sarah Huckabee Sanders talk about herself for 20 minutes. So I did turn it off. Whatever. I'm not a journalist. Leave me be. I'm not a journalist. <laughs> also something I say in every episode. I'm not a journalist. Please give me a job. The Republicans like to embarrass themselves. Wow. Sheep thrills bingo. Start putting it together now. Um, but generally, you know, from what I read about the speech, she you know, was attacking the woke mob, as per usual. Um, 
wokeness is such a dog whistle at this point. It's so upsetting. Whatever. I can't even get into all of that. Um, But from what I read online, what I read in the news that happened to be online, sorry, is that this speech was a lot more um, connected to those culture war issues that we talked about. Um, A lot more, a lot more connected than Biden's speech. Um, His goal, of course, was to not appear online at all, appear to be an everyman, talk about, you know, Joey and folks and listen and all that kind of stuff. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a lot more invested in the issues that, like, we don't know whether or not they're actually effective. They are effective at getting people riled up, but are they actually going to motivate people to get out and vote? I don't know. I don't think so. But, um, regardless, kind of, she focused on a lot of what she has done as governor and kind of talking about how that's going to impact national policy. So, you know, her first day as governor, she banned the term Latinx, which is, like, you've got so many issues in the state of Arkansas, and that's what you're focusing on. Like, that's your first executive order as um, governor, but, like, whatever. Um, And then also reviewing educational curriculum to make sure that students aren't being indoctrinated by critical race theory and all those things. And again, we talked about that for, like, 25 minutes last week, so I'm not going to get into it too much now. But those are the, those are the Republican bread and butter issues now. Critical race theory, drag queens, the term Latinx, Hunter um, Biden. I almost referenced a different Hunter. Don't mind me. (laughs) Um, Hunter Biden. Like, those are the things that they are focusing on. And I don't know how effective that's going to be, because I think that there is a portion of the internet, there are you know, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the Joe Rogan's of the world that are very hyped up on those issues. But like those people like Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan are not reaching the entire Republican electorate. And I'm not sure the entire Republican electorate really cares. I think there's a certain subsection, but it's the same, you know, there's the same thing on the other side with um, kind of more liberal voters. There's the people who like watch the like progressive Twitch streamers And they're talking about Medicare for all and, you know, socialism and whatnot. But that's not reflective of the entire Democratic Party. And you don't see those Democratic leaders leaning into that kind of stuff. Not that not that the not not that the nonsense that the right is talking about is equivalent to the policies that people on the left are like the far left are talking about. But I'm just saying, like, for the sake of argument, like those are the like mirrors of each other. But one side is far more rational than the other. Ooh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about it. Um, But anyway, that's kind of that was the that was the crux of her rebuttal was talking about trying to make the claim that Joe Biden is disconnected from reality um, and then talking about issues that I first perceive as far more disconnected um, than any of the issues that she talked about. Um, and, you know, if Sarah Huckabee Sanders is the future of the Republican Party, good for them. Good for the Republican Party. I'm happy for them. Um, so that was that was her, her rebuttal speech, blah, blah, blah. So now we have gone over a lot in the last 45 minutes. Um, but what does this all mean now, kind of impact-wise? What does it mean moving forward? Um, 
again, this was kind of the setup of the re-election campaign. So that's obviously a very big situation now that now things are going to start ramping up because every year the elections get longer and longer and longer. Um, and I think the next big thing is that he's going to like make an official declaration or DeSantis is going to make an official declaration. And as soon as one of those people do that, that's when things are really going to start moving in terms of re-election. So that's very interesting. Um, but they're clearly setting up that strategy. Let's get, let's finish the job. Like that's the slogan, Joe Biden, 2024, let's finish the job, which is pretty good. I like it. Anyway, snaps to the speechwriters. Happy for you guys. Um, but another very interesting thing about the Biden White House moving into the next, like the latter chunk of his his tenure in this term, is that the chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, just left the White House right after the um, State of the Union. So he, his last day was, was Wednesday. Um, and so he has been with the White House since the very beginning of the Biden presidency. He has been with Joe Biden since for like years and years. Um, and so that's, he's been a very, very important advisor. Uh, and now he is kind of moving on to greener pastures, which is the way it goes with chiefs, chiefs of staff, because that job is a lot of work. Um, and so the new chief of staff did not write down his name, but suffice it to say, he's another white guy, whatever. Um, he's actually the, like the former, like maybe he's the owner I don't know what exactly his job title is, but he owns like the call call your mother bagel stop bagel shops in DC, which is like very iconic and very funny. And they're gonna have so many bagels in the White House over the next couple of years. Which anyway, it's just like tangential, but a little funny. Um, but anyway, so now we have a new chief of staff. We have kind of a new direction for the White House. Kind of a lot of shifting and changing there in terms of their priorities, in terms of their strategies. Uh, and everything else. And of course, with the new Congress, everything is going to kind of shake up as well. It's a little too soon to say like exactly um, what all those shifts are going to mean for like communications from the White House and in terms of like their relationships in the House and in the Senate. But all of those changes are happening and we're going to be kind of paying attention to those things as the years go on. Um, but that's kind of all I wanted to say about the speech, about the before, after, during. Um, what I do want to talk about now, and we have a couple minutes left, and I know that this is bad, but I am just a silly little girl, and I want to talk about State of the Union fashion. Every year, I am looking, and I'm like, I'm paying attention to the speech, I'm, 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 I'm acknowledging everything, I'm keeping it all in my brain, my mind's like a steel trap, I got it all in there. But I'm also, I'm paying attention to what people are wearing because it's always fabulous. And it's always so fun to see what the different like fashion styles are. So some of my, some, some, Jill Biden looked fabulous. She looked great. I loved her outfit. I loved Kamala's outfit. I think they looked great. Um, and again, like I want to know whose styles for the State of the Union. Because that's a lot of work. Because you have to toe the line between like, obviously, like, you're wearing business professional, but you also, like, need to have, like, a little pop of color. It needs to be fun. It needs to be fabulous. Like, for the women, like, there's so many choices there. And actually, because, again, my roommates were looking over my shoulder. They go, does everyone have to wear red, white, or blue? I was like, yeah, basically. 
Um, so I think that's very funny. Want to know who didn't wear red, white, or blue? Kristen Cinema. Ugh. Boring. Well, anyway, she wore, like, a yellow dress with, like, big puffed sleeves. She was sitting next to Mitt Romney. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. I did not care for her dress, but I appreciate that she went out of, um, you know, she, she pushed, she pushed the limits of what is appropriate for State of the Union fashion. Do you want to know what, who else pushed the limits for State of the Union fashion? And I mentioned this already. Marjorie Taylor Greene in her Cruella de Vil coat. Like, it's literally like a white jacket with like a fur collar. It's not great. It was not a great coat. Um, and especially because she's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so everyone's always taking pictures of her. Like, what? what? I don't, I don't know. But anyway, it's fun. It was good. Um, and again, we're going to be looking at those pictures forever because those pictures are hilarious because she looks great in that coat and it's a terrible coat and I love it. Anyway, um, all of the men were boring as always. Just wear the same Navy suit every time, I guess, except Paul Pelosi was there and he was wearing a funky little fedora and I enjoyed his funky little fedora. It brought me joy. I don't, I don't know why he was wearing that fedora, but he was, um, there was somebody else I was going to talk about. Oh, the other fun thing. So a lot of people were wearing a lot of fun pins, which I always love because then like in the beginning and the end, when they're just kind of filming around the house chamber and like showing people having conversations with each other, I always like to look and see what pins people are wearing. And a lot of people who I guess were like on ed and labor or doing things with education, were all wearing little crayon pins. And I want a crayon pin. If you are listening and you are a person with one of those crayon pins, if you're a member of Congress listening, hey, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Um, or you work for one of those people, I want a crayon pin. I want it. I also want an ERA pin. I want them all. Anyway, um, so that was, the, the, that. those are my fashion reviews. Should I become, a, should this become a fashion show? No, it should not. I don't know anything. All I know is that I think that Jill looked pretty funky fresh. I can't even I can't even describe what she was wearing. It was purple. It looked great. Paul Pelosi was wearing a fedora. He also looked great. He looked like he was having a good time. Good for them. Good for them. Vogue, call me up. <laughs> I'm having a day, guys. Oh boy. Um, okay. Also, a couple miscellaneous things that I missed that I skipped over. Just because this it's the State of the Union, and so there's always a meme. So Mitt Romney and Santos had a conversation on the floor in which Mitt Romney basically called Santos an embarrassment, which is pretty funny to me. Um, but anyway, Mitt Romney is like, you are the worst. Why are you still in Congress? You should definitely quit, which is like really it's a really bad like don't meet your heroes moment for Santos. He looked very upset um, on the floor, which is a little funny. There was also a member with a cane. Um, who was standing like kind of in the middle. So he every time they did a standing ovation, he would stand up and he would like raise his cane in the air. And because of where he was standing, the camera angle, like the front on camera angle, had the cane in the angle every single time. And it was so funny that we were just like watching this guy with the cane. Anyway, it was just funny that it was in every single angle. And I didn't see anyone else comment on it, but it was funny to me. Also, Bono was there. Burying the lead a little bit, 
I don't know if they ever acknowledged Bono, but Bono was there. Like, random. Like, Bono was just, like, sitting next to Paul Pelosi. Are he and Paul friends? I, I don't know. Whatever. I'm happy for him. I'm, I, he looked like he was having a good time. And that's what it's all about, right? It's just having a good time. <laughs> and proving that you are not on death's door and that you can, in fact, be president for six more years. Okay. Um, all right. We've got, like, one minute left. There's some other stuff that we're going to talk about, but we'll save that for next week. But the one thing that I also want to talk about in terms of a kind of a crazy political story of the week, um, this is a little bit of fan service for my sister, Maggie, who texted me and said, I have a wild news story for you. Flacco, the Eurasian eagle owl. And then that was just it. And then obviously we had a conversation about it, but it was very funny out-of-the-blue text, Flacco the Eurasian Eagle Owl. And the story here is that the Flacco the Eurasian Eagle Owl is an eagle at, um, eagle owl, eagle hyphen owl, was at the, um, he's at the Central Park Zoo, and he escaped from the Central Park Zoo, and now it's just, like, hanging out in Central Park. And they don't know what's going on, because he allegedly doesn't hunt, but he, he hasn't been interested in any of their baited traps. So he's just kind of hanging out. He's like like a couple blocks away from the zoo. So it kind of seems like he wants to go home, but he is not like flying back home. So anyway, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bird watching there. Um, and I will say, this is something new about me. Um, zoo, escaped zoo animal stories are my all time my new all-time favorite brand of news story because there's this there's the dallas zoo where like tons of animals have gone missing and there's the guy who like helped the animals escape who's like stealing the animals like that's hilarious there was the um zebras that escaped from that enclosure last two years ago in dc there was the red panda that was just like hanging out in dc for a while oh love an escaped zoo animal let them be free. I'm happy for them. But anyway, uh, I'll keep you guys updated on Flacco the Eurasian Eagle Owl because that guy, he's just a little guy and he is in fact my best friend. Um, but with all that being said, sorry if that was a little chaotic and dramatic in that last 10 minutes because I really put a lot in there. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. I will see you next Thursday. A lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. Um, but yeah, we continue on. We continue forwards. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you guys later.